On this episode of SSI Executive Conversations, Darwin sits down with Sean Reynolds. They discuss Sean's Air Force background, the importance of team leadership as a regulatory professional, and the dynamic between regulatory and quality in industry. I'm extremely excited to uh, welcome Sean Reynolds to the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. Uh, Sean's most recent role as a Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs with Smith & Nephew, but he spent the last 24 years as a quality and regulatory affairs professional uh, in the medical device industry, focusing on the development and global registrations of technologies, including cardiovascular, orthopedic, and the neurological spaces. Uh, prior to joining the medical device industry, he served almost 12 years in the United States Air Force as an avionics technician on F-16 fighter aircraft, which is pretty cool. Uh, Sean holds a BS in operations management from Wayland University, is currently competing his MBA, uh, completing his MBA through the University of Massachusetts, Eisenberg School of Business. So welcome on the podcast, Sean. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Uh, thank you very much, Darwin. And I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to this experience and I love the forum that you've established. This is awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate the, the kind words and certainly was excited to have this conversation with you. I think it's going to be really valuable to not only people in their careers, but as you look at supply and demand and how vitally important regulatory affairs, having a seat at the table and how they not only support getting products onto the market, but managing the uh, risk post-market. Uh, it's just such a vital role. Um, so you originally came from the military first, as I had mentioned, and then entered the medical device industry. And so why don't we start there? Maybe you could share a little bit about that pathway and some of the activities that you did relevant to federal aircraft, obviously a completely different area, but highly regulated that helped you when you got into the medical device industry. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, uh, going into the military, I was at a point where I I wanted to see the world and I was looking for a pathway for my longer term career. And uh, the United States Air Force looked like a tremendous opportunity to do that because I love flying even from a young age. I love to fly. And it just seemed that there was a lot focused on the Air Force and the, the growing need of technologies, computer systems. And that was the growth space. What technologies were to come and be introduced to aircraft for them to perform their role. And uh, so in joining the military, I gained uh, a lot of my background on electronics and technologies and integrated systems and how they work together. Uh, for everyone who doesn't know, avionics are all of the computers that help an aircraft fly. Uh, aside from the engine, uh, the jets that propel it, uh, there's the, the radar, radios, global positioning systems, flight controls, everything. And so a lot of that really helped give me a foundation of theory of operations and the science behind it, as well as the electronic circuitry, which was a lot of my training. In addition to that, I gained a lot of experience around operations as working on the flight line. It's all about producing sorties, uh, which is similar to manufacturing operations. We put jets up in the air and when they came back, we turned them around. And so there was a lot of logistics around dealing with meeting the uh, time schedules 
using a lot of just-in-time skills from the operations management background uh, for getting refueling uh, tankers out to the jets to get them refueled. Any uh, jets that came back and pilots had issues with any systems, that uh, those problems had to be analyzed, diagnosed, and repaired so we could keep the planes in a war readiness state. Uh, and it was all about being able to turn them around quickly. And that was what we focused on. But it takes a lot with that. A lot took uh, not only the refueling tankers coming from a different area of the base, it also took working with back shops who did some repairs on the uh, replaceable units or the, the transmitters receivers that we put in the aircraft. And so in my 12 years, I, I saw the introduction of the GPS systems, like I said, and we had to retrofit older aircraft and install those. And it took a lot of experience and it was not unlike what it took to introduce a, a major change or a, a line extension, a significant line extension or new platform to a device in industry. And so I, a lot of that contributed and gave me a level of comfort in stepping into industry and working with teams and, and, and people in that regard. That that was such a great synopsis, Sean. And there's so many different things I thought of as you were you were kind of walking through that. But I always talk about regulatory affairs and when a company or a, an executive leader wants certain skill sets for a position. And for example, I, I use the example of, of a bakery, right? You want somebody in regulatory affairs that can manage the bakery, lead the stakeholders and interact with the governing body in terms of managing that risk process content within the different sections, or do you want a subject matter expert in every one of those different sections? And to your point, you just talked about, obviously with aircraft, proactivity, risk management, and you stated, get them as they come back in, turned around as quickly as possible. But also, obviously, you know, safety, risk management and making sure that that's done uh, because that's extremely expensive equipment and extremely valuable, not to mention the, the, the pilot, right, from a safety standpoint. But you have people in different areas that are going to do those skills and where in that situation you might be really strong in a particular area. It's as much about the team and how you interact and the emotional maturity that you have as you interact with your, your team members, in a sense. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's all about the team, uh, and especially in the military, when you see uh, units being deployed, depending on the size of the unit that's deploying, I can speak from the Air Force myself. Uh, we had a squadron of 28 to 32 aircraft in one squadron, but sometimes we would go on short-term uh, term duty assignments. But deploying to the Middle East a few times, we would only take about half that number of aircraft. And we only took about a third to half the number of people that is already in our squadron. And a lot of us were dependent upon to help the other areas in those key subject matter expert fields. Uh, there were crew chiefs who took care of the aircraft as a whole. There was the weapons members who took care of the ordnance on the aircraft as well as specialists, uh, which was uh, the group that I was a part of, and a lot of other logistical 
you know, support staff. And part of making that easier was a having an appreciation for everyone doing their role, which is very similar to industry. Right. But at the same time, we were also leveraging a, a, you know, a well-known philosophy of cross utilization training or cut. This, and that's become no, sorry, go, go ahead. I was just going to say that like kind of segues really well, I think into the next, uh, question that I wanted to ask you. And, and so what you're, what you're starting to talk about, I think, you know, apologize for interrupting you because that's really important information. But in my experience over the last eight years, I've found regulatory leaders that sometimes put such a premium on certain experience, certainly for U.S. roles, for pre-market submissions, whether it be the, the, the PMA experience with the PMA or 510K, for example, as an author. And with PMA, I think that's definitely more understandable depending on what they're looking for. But being a complete regulatory affairs professional is, is argu arguably a lot more about a more is more a lot more about more than just writing sections of the 510k or leading that submission, um, as well as that interaction with the FDA. So maybe you could kind of piggyback off what we were talking about and share your perspective on other areas like understanding clinical evidence or analyzing data and what that means to be a complete regulatory affairs professional and how they look at career development potentially. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there are a lot of aspects to be a regulatory affairs professional, and it really comes down to the technologies you have, the risk levels, and what your organization size is like, the extent of the portfolio of products you have, how old they are, <laughs> whether it's a, a portfolio consisting of products that are 30 years old up until you know, current uh, designs and innovative solutions. And it's really what you need in that department. And when it comes to quality and regulatory, even the other areas, it's, I think it's a matter of the fit and feel. Mm -hmm. uh, you can have a, a degree or a background in a particular area and you can leverage that skill, but uh, it, you get down to what you enjoy and where you find your wheelhouse, you know, as, as they say with baseball terms is that sweet spot where you focus and you are yourself dynamic in pulling things together. And at the same time, you're still dependent on all of your colleagues and team members bringing the best of what they have together and it's your responsibility as a regulatory for professional to, to pull that together and condense it uh, and get it consolidated into a submission and, and get that in on time. Uh, and a lot of that activity is uh, dependent on other skill sets like project management. Uh, just I've seen project managers leading a development team and they have a ton to deal with. But those fundamental capabilities or traits that they have in being able to track all the nodes of activity uh, and asking the right questions, regulatory specialists have to leverage similar traits and being able to keep the team members getting the information for each section on time where they might contribute. Uh, thinking of a PMA submission, uh, especially mod modular PMAs, you have... SMEs from all functions contributing in, but it's taking that final read from a regulatory professional and knowing what 
the reviewers at FDA or other agencies might be looking at to see if there are any trigger words, any other ways of, of stating facts or uh, details about the product, because ultimately it all has to be translatable into other national languages. <laughs> uh, and right. There's an easy way to do it about that because you don't have to completely rewrite another submission. Um, but leveraging skills, uh, understanding clinical evidence, I, I'll have to go there. I have extreme appreci appreciation for my uh, clinical counterparts and what it takes to, to gather evidence, uh, creating a protocol, coordinating everything with sites, uh, principal investigators, and getting the enrollment as well all that data in and analyzing it, crunching it, and formatting it. And that is huge because even now with the EU MDR requirements, all devices that need active clinical evidence or in some way leveraging clinical evidence that was captured in another area. And uh, it's interpreting that outcome data set and how it can be leveraged toward a, a risk analysis and a risk to benefit a determination. And it's having an appreciation for all that work, but at the same time, understanding what the outcomes say. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of the work that I did. Uh, well, the development <laughs> work that I did, uh, I was uh, uh, really encouraged by my manager when I was at Covidian several years ago, working on PMA product that uh, I learned how they completed all that data collection, but then uh, working with the biostatisticians, how the numbers get crunched, and then in turn, what the outcomes of the data say toward uh, the clinical benefits and, and whether or not something was uh, inferior or superior. Uh, and, and that in turn helps you read through clinical evidence if it's important to your submission as a regulatory professional. Yeah. I, all members are stressed as it is. And so sometimes if people are understand, understaffed, I've seen all groups be a little bit understaffed. It's, it's being able to read through and ask questions where you see something that doesn't make sense, even though you're not a clinical specialist it still should be able to read fluidly. And, and therein is where uh, a minor catch helps both you and your clinical team, as well as the greater uh, development team and getting the, the submission in. Now, I think in terms of that complexity of background of experience, that bandwidth helps you to read those tea leaves, understand how your teammates are thinking about things. And to your point, understand how to most efficiently put that information. Uh, I was at a, as, as we do more government contracting, I was, I was at a DARPA conference a couple weeks ago and how companies create submissions to DARPA, they, they did a whole section on just the efficiency of the communication. And you, you spoke to that a little bit earlier. Um, and one of the things from a 510K standpoint uh, a couple of the webinars we did uh, two years ago, one was on cl clinical evidence generation. Uh, Dr. Brad Glazer was uh, the guest for that. And with medical devices, clinical evidence generation is, is a little bit more challenging, right? Because you're piggybacking on the 510K process. Sometimes it's a little bit harder. So 
understanding, you know, where you get that information with, from and how you partner with people, I think is, is vitally important, but how you communicate with the FDA, what you put in the submission, making sure what you put in there is pertinent and you're not expounding with your background in, in quality, you know, maybe you could speak a little bit about how regulatory and quality hold hands. And again, opportunities for maybe crossover talent, because I've helped a few people that always had an interest in regulatory, but had, let's say five to eight years of quality experience, get an opportunity. But over the last eight years, I've seen a lot more situations where people had that interest and they couldn't even get an interview because they didn't have, you know, a regulatory background. They wouldn't even be considered. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how they hold hands and how there might be an opportunity uh, being missed there relevant to crossover talent. Oh, that's a, that's a great area to, to get into, Darwin, because I've found that there have been struggles for some members just getting their foot in the door uh, in a different area for that very reason. They haven't ticked a box or the right wording isn't in their resume uh, or they, they don't have any direct experience. Uh, you know, personally speaking, I have always tried to look for the skills. And one of my interview questions is always, what intangibles do you bring to this job? And everyone has their inherent traits where they do something great. And that can be leveraged down the road. It's just a matter of learning skills and learning the final detail. Um, for quality and regulatory, I, I think the skills uh, are very similar. It's all about the background that you have, whether it's an engineering specialization or, or a data analysis area. It, it's the attention to detail. It's how well you know how to document uh, data and evidence you see or the outcomes. And it's reading through and making sure uh, a risk assessment speaks to adequately speaks to the evidence that you're presented with. Yeah. And as far as the translation of quality into a regulatory role or a regulatory affairs member into a quality role, I think it's really a matter of, again, getting back to where you find your skills are best used and how well you do a job in an area. Uh, it, personally, I got into quality because of my background from the military and in looking at all the evidence and my attention to detail and looking at the numbers and making sure everything adds up. Uh, prior to separating, I was reviewing all the, the details that junior specialists were completing repairs. I had to make sure that everything was copacetic and that they did everything they should have done before we put that aircraft and a pilot back up in the air to make sure nothing goes wrong. And same thing with devices. It's all about the data and evidence to make sure what we're presenting to a regulatory agency is an accurate reflection of the performance of the device. Um, I moved from quality into regulatory as we had a member leave and my, my boss at the time asked me if I was interested. And I just felt uh, a really comfort a uh, great comfort, comfort level with writing submissions. Mm. And I, I loved the challenge of taking a ton of test data and evidence and pulling it together and, and reducing it to a concise amount. And to the point you made earlier, you don't want to submit more than needs to be submitted. 
Right. Because you, leave, you leave yourself open for questions. Uh, and it, again, therein is part of that challenge that you have with reviewers because FDA reviewers, PMDA in Japan, uh, Anvisa in Brazil, they all see so many different technologies and they're all small groups of reviewers. So it's, they just have their own experiences. So if you're giving them a fresh technology that they've never seen before, they have to try and understand it. And so it's, it's helping build that discussion, telling a story and pointing to the data and where that supports safe and effective use. And, and that, that was a skill that, that I found I had and I really enjoyed and I kind of migrated more to predominantly being in regulatory affairs. I, I am, I'm, I'm biased. I'll just put that, you know, say that right up front. I, I, I believe that companies miss out on talent regularly because of how they look at things. And also in terms of not differentiating between cultural fit versus whatever the technical area is that you want to evaluate, not having good processes there, but of the last five positions that I've had, corporate America and now in, in terms of running this company, I'd never done any of them before. So in a normal interview process or you know, looking for an opportunity, I would have never gotten up to bat or gotten even in, in the interview conversation. Look at your background and what you've done, come to the Air Force, to industry, quality, and then the career that you've had in regulatory. And it was very clear the first time I met you, the first time I got to talk to you, high emotional intelligence, cares about people. We One of the first conversations we had was talking about mentorship and empowerment of team members and making sure that their skill set and how they can grow as a professional is that they're getting opportunities in those areas that they're weaker to be a more complete professional. So I just think it's really important because you can hire somebody that checks off every box and if they don't fit your culture and have the right attitude versus somebody that maybe doesn't check off every box and they have the right skill set and the passionate interest in what your why your mission statement is that that might be a better fit versus the person that not not always but but uh so i love how this conversation is going in your thoughts but when you think about other areas like event reporting risk management and, and complaints for pms for example maybe you could share a little bit what are areas where regulatory affairs professionals should think about cross-training and having exposure in other areas uh, to, that bring professional value to the organization and as well as their career. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's, it's really an outcome of where you start your career and the size of the company. Uh, smaller companies, you wear multiple hats, as, as we all know, and you're introduced or get exposure to many different facets of what are large career fields, quality and regulatory, and, and even on the clinical side, you have your strategy side and clinical evidence uh, reporting where they have a special area to develop clinical evaluation reports. They're still very broad, but it's where you find yourself in the, the niche areas. Uh, in the smaller businesses, uh, I myself uh, had been part of regulatory, but I was doing complaint handling, which we're analyzing them, but then in, uh, reviewing the assessments from the service repair department that had to uh, run the investigation and put a, a device through its rigors 
to make sure it's still operationally functional or properly repair it. Again, yeah. it goes back to the details. Did they do everything they should have? And then from the complaint handling, it was event reporting, submitting to global agencies on those. And, and as you get into larger companies, those are dedicated areas where you have interactions with other members, but, but you potentially have larger groups of you know centralized functions where they're totally focused on the complaint handling side and the reviewing those investigation records and then there's a separate group another connected but a completely separate group uh, completing the uh, event reporting on the appropriate forms to go to the different agencies but it all comes back to working together to make sure you've covered all your bases and and that again is where I've experienced quality and regulatory working hand in hand. And when we get to a point, it could possibly be pulling in someone from the, the clinical group right. to make sure, are there any uh, clinical aspects that need to be considered before we conclude or, or re achieve a final determination on the risk to benefit assessment to make sure everything is, is uh, fulfilled. And so it's just the larger you grow, there are those individual areas, but it's, it's really looking for people with that desire, as you pointed before, you have people who are motivated and you just get the sense that they will succeed. It's just giving them a chance. That's right. I think that's great. I appreciate you sharing that perspective and insight. So let, I wish, I wish we had more time. We're, we're running out of time here, but I, I definitely want to get, we're in this, uh, I call it the post-pandemic hangover a little bit, uh, you know, and the pandemic kind of like dog years, right? It was, you know, uh, you look at that time, that first two years felt more like five years um, from, from that standpoint. But certainly disruptive, a lot of interesting technology and solutions coming from that disruption, as well as some of the, the pain points. But um, I would love to, you are definitely a, a positive person in terms of uh, my interactions with you and how you look at things. And so when you think about the last few years, I'd love just to have your personal perspective on change, disruption, and how important or how a, a, a positive outlook, how that impacts people as a person and, and a leader from your perspective. Oh, sure. That's a, a great area to look at, Darwin. And the pandemic impacted all of us. Uh, in industry across the board. Uh, some businesses actually did better uh, that are in that field, but uh, there was a lot where things did change uh, in business activities and keeping focus on it. You know, with that uh, external stressor on our lives, you still have to focus on doing the job. So I would be very surprised if uh, any uh, the colleagues in industry didn't leverage their change agility <laughs> in some way and to right. uh, in meeting the challenges with the changes. Um, yeah. P uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. That was something that went through the roof and uh, at Smith and Nephew at the time, that was something that we completed or, you know, produced for a lot of customers willing on vendors. Well, we had to figure out how to ramp that up. And, and that's just one instance. Uh, I can think of the companies that produce ventilators. Uh, I'm sure that was a nightmare for them because the demand 
that went through the roof and all of the countries that now needed those ventilators. Um, but in, in looking at dealing with uh, events that occur like that, I think it's important to get the team, again, to lean on one another. And that's another outcome of building a dynamic team where you work well together. Uh, individuals going through stressful times. Uh, I know uh, one of my team members at the time, his wife was having their first child. And so it was all stressful situations from, from different aspects. But it's, in my mind, sticking to the fundamentals, but appreciating and treating everyone for the, the human that they are, you know, uh, relying on those relationships that you formed. But then, you know, just working closely together where you may see someone stressed out or if the, the group has lost a couple people and there's a heavier workload that comes in, it's just extending that helping hand, you know, and asking them what you can do for them uh, and just keeping them pumped up. And at the same time, it's getting your individual team and even a larger team to continue to focus on the top priorities. What are the most critical needs? And don't get distracted by the noise that comes up with day-to-day -day operations. Uh, but uh, it's, it's just keeping routine meetings and staying connected and together and realizing that you're all walking it together. And when you separate the load across everyone, it's, it's easier burden for each individual person. I think that that I think that's so smart. I think that's right. I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. Uh, I've been enjoying some of the you know stoicism, some of those writers. But uh, you know, one of those sayings is the problem is is the way or, or the solution because, and generally meaning that you know we learn more from our failures than we do our successes, and that when you have problems, you know, to your point, keeping your cool, thinking we're. we're better problem solvers and uh, biologically smarter when we're in a positive frame of mind versus a negative. And when you have challenges and problems, it, what a great opportunity to learn something new and figure out a better way to potentially do things. So uh, I love that. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that. Really appreciate your time. I, I thought this was a great conversation. I wish we had more time and uh, definitely uh, look, look to potentially collaborate again in the future. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, it's been my pleasure to be a part of this. I want to thank you again for the invitation and hosting me and uh, how to contribute to, to your initiative. That's fantastic. Awesome. For the video recording of this podcast, along with additional resources, make sure to find us on the web at SureGSolutions.com and follow us on social media and LinkedIn at SureGSolutions.